0: Uh, And we're actually making a transition in terms of the book of Leviticus starting this Sunday. Up until now, the focus has been laying the foundation for a, a vocabulary of worship. You'll remember the context of Leviticus. God has rescued his people from slavery in Egypt. And here in Leviticus, in the wilderness, he's laying a new foundation for them for life. Through the establishment in Leviticus of repeated and regular practices, Yahweh is teaching the Israelites how to be in relationship with him and with each other. And so over these past few weeks, we've been learning the true meaning of words like offering, sacrifice, sin, priest, holy, clean and unclean, and most recently the word atonement. And the Lord has in Leviticus provided for us concrete visual aids in helping us to understand the meaning of these words. Blood, fire, smoke, pure unblemished animals, slaughtered bulls and scapegoats. All so that we might appreciate the deeper significance of this language of worship that we have. And the point, and this is so key, if you haven't, didn't get anything in these last few weeks, if you remember nothing else, remember this. The point of all these instructions that God has given us thus far in Leviticus is not to save anybody as we discovered last Sunday by way of the letter to the Hebrews in the New Testament looking back on Leviticus, the elementary and earthly rituals of the law, what's given to us in Leviticus, were building blocks. They were the shadows of, that were eventually to lead God's people toward the light that had yet to be revealed. The light of Jesus Christ. The purpose of the whole first part of Leviticus was, is to bring us, in other words, to an understanding of where the focus of our worship belongs of whom we worship, and why. All the patterns, all the strange and beautiful imagery of Leviticus is given to help us picture the fullness of our salvation, of all that we have in and through, as the writer to the Hebrews put last week, Jesus Christ. Jesus, as we looked at last week, is the perfect priest. Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. Jesus is the perfect scapegoat. And therefore, again, as the writer to the Hebrews so eloquently put it, in Christ we are perfect. In Christ, we are perfect forever. But as I say, with chapter 17, Leviticus starts to shift its focus. And it starts to shift its focus from worship in theory to worship in practice. From here on in, the Lord is going to start putting the vocabulary of worship that we've been learning, that we've received, into grammar and syntax of a life lived in praise and submission to him and we can understand this in our this idea this analogy in our daily lives i could ask various words and many of you could tell me the meaning of those words right but i might follow up when you tell me the meaning of the word i might say the following thing can you use it in a sentence You you can know the meaning of a lot of words, but can you apply it? Can you use it in a sentence? And God is taking now in Leviticus the vocabulary of worship that he's given us, and he's giving us the grammar and the syntax to be able to use it in terms of the worship of our lives. This morning, in other words, we make the transition from how we gather in the pew on Sunday to how we engage our lives and our world from Monday to Saturday. And with that being said, I want to invite one of our elders, Tony Hunhausen, to come forward. And he is going to be reading for us this morning from Leviticus 17 and Leviticus 18. So if you want to open up to your Bibles in Leviticus 17 and 18, the page number and the verses are on the screen. 17 and 18. Thanks, Tony. Thanks, Master
1: Chris. All right. Um, they're, on, they're in the um, Pew Bible. This is the same one, right? 182, page 182, or let's see. 82 on the Pew Bible. Yeah, 82. Okay. Let me review here what it was again 11 to 14. Thank you. Leviticus 11 to 14. For the life of a creature is in the blood and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. Therefore I say to the Israelites, none of you may eat blood, nor may an alien living among you eat blood. Any Israelite or any other alien living among you who hunts any animal or bird that may be eaten must drain out the blood and cover it with earth. Because the life of every creature is its blood. That is why I have said to the Israelites, you must not eat the blood of any creature because the life of every creature is in its blood. Anyone who eats it must be cut off. In chapter 18, the Lord said to Moses, speak of the Israelites and say to them, I'm the Lord your God. You must not do as they do in Egypt where you used to live, and you must not do as they do in the land of Canaan, Where I am bringing you. Do not follow their practices. You must obey my laws and be careful to follow my decrees. I am the Lord your God. Keep my decrees and laws, for the man who obeys them will live by them. I am the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
0: So today we begin to understand that our ethics. The principles that we live by do not emerge in a vacuum. We don't make them up as we go. We don't even discover them along the way. Our ethics, our practices for living together derive, according to Leviticus, out of our worship, our grateful dependence upon our Heavenly Father. Now again, before we get into what what Are The chapters that are before us, 17, 18, and I want you to keep them open. You're going to want to keep them open. So go back to 82 if you closed your Bible already. Just keep them open in front of you. But you're also, chapter 20, you can count in this too. Before we get into the thick of it, I want to really make sure we get this. It's really important that we, that we appreciate that what follows in Leviticus, not just today but until we get to the end of the book, what we read together what I hope we discuss beyond the sermon, what hopefully more than anything else we internalize are more than just rules for us to follow. And if you've got 17 and 18 open just in front of you, it's kind of hard not to just see them as nothing more than rules because there's a lot of do-nots, thou-nots, and we just think it's a laundry list of rules. But as I've said from the beginning in Leviticus, and it's no less true here, when the Lord God tells us to be holy as he is holy, he isn't simply telling us what to do. In other words, these are not just what's going to follow from here on in a series of conditions for us to earn God's favor or to secure our standing with him. And when we see rules, even though we, can, we, we understand that at one level, when we see rules, that's how we think what that means. This is what we have to do. These are the things we have to do. Otherwise, we're in trouble. Otherwise, we're not in good standing with God. Otherwise, we haven't earned God's favor. And what I want you to continue to remember today and here on in is, and this has been no less true from the beginning and it won't be till the end, we are saved by grace, not by our works. Not our best efforts at good behavior. And you're going to want to read this and then think, this is how I can be good for God. This is how I can, can," again, you would never say it this way, I can kind of earn my place with God. So subtle, but really important. What's happening here? Our Father is equipping and guiding us in terms of who we are. Because he already has rescued us. Because as our creator, redeemer, and sustainer, he has already claimed us as his own. Our identity is established. Do not forget where we ended last week. In Christ, we are perfect. God has already rescued us and claimed us. In other words, the expectations that our Father is going to place upon us from here on in are still and always born out of his grace the provision of his life and power. In other words, these are standards and practices that we can live up to. These are not, these are not pie-in-the-sky ideals. These are, these are standards and practices we can live out of because God is at work in our lives and in our world. We can't live up to them. We can't live out of them out of our own strength. We live into them and out of them in the same way that we got here, by God's grace, by his empowerment, his life and presence. So with that being said, our starting point, (laughs) right out of the gate for guidelines that God gives us for life as worship, are centered around two of the most basic human desires that we have, food and sex. The first guideline, you heard uh, Tony read it, do not consume blood, do not consume the blood of animals that have been sacrificed, do not consume the blood of animals that you eat for food. Now, let's just pull back for a second, because in my experience, most of us tend to be pretty squeamish about blood. Some of us even faint around it. By and large, the average person here tends to avoid blood. So why exactly would this be a concern? Why would God need to say this? I mean, were people so different then? The one thing that we, we can kind of read between the lines and we know from history is that, and, and this is important when God says, don't, don't live like they did in Egypt and don't live like they're, you're going to see they live in Canaan, is that back in the day, blood was seen as having supernatural properties. Blood was seen as being palatable, something that you wanted to consume because it gave you added strength. Blood would give you, um, provide vitality. It would give you fertility. It would give you youth. And so that was the sort of the attractiveness of drinking blood. And yet you'll notice here in Leviticus, this is exactly the reason why God says not to consume it. Because blood is life. And life belongs to God. And in case you missed it, our Father has an additional reason why blood shouldn't be on the menu. Because blood represents atonement. Reconciliation with God and with each other. In other words, blood is sacred because life is sacred. Especially a saved life. A redeemed life. Again, you may be sitting here going, this is fascinating beyond the fact that it's disgusting. Um, And you may be sitting here going, I don't really understand why we're sitting here because most of us are not inclined to drink a lot of blood. Unless there are any vampires in the house, you can own up to it right now. So, uh, you know, and and to take it out of being tongue-in-cheek, we live in a world today, too, where very few of us even go to a butcher anymore to get our meat. Anybody still go to a butcher? A couple people? All right. But a lot of us, most of us, I do, we get our meat prepackaged, clean, cut, and prepared, waiting behind glass. So... What's the application here? What does this possibly have to do with us? I mean, is the takeaway, don't order your steaks medium rare? I mean, is that? I know. I know. I know. I know. It doesn't get any better, I'm just telling you. Okay. But playing, playing around, and that's, uh, it's intentional. Let's step back for a second. Let's, let's really get behind kind of how we look at this. We look at this and we kind of go like I said, gross, or we make fun of it because we're more modern, right? We're more civilized. We're more modern, more civilized. We don't, this isn't a concern for us, or is it? We're more modern, we're more civilized, but I'm going to argue to you this morning that even though we're more modern and more civilized, we can still have an appetite for blood. I mean, even though a lot has changed since back then, the world that we find ourselves in is still, as it was then, not fair, I mean, right? It's not, we don't live in a fair world. You know, you, we live in a world where you can get taken advantage of. We live in a world where many of us are often victims of wrongdoing. We live in a world where someone can cheat you out of something that you legitimately pay for. They didn't put it in the bag. You paid for it, you get home, and it's not there. Or you paid for it, you paid quite a price for it, and it didn't deliver on what it promised. The quality was not there. We live in a world where a lot of people profit at times from our loss. Some people even have a laugh, like we like to say, at our expense. There's that moron who cuts us off on the freeway. Or that idiot who has more than 10 items or less when he's in the express line and the sign specifically says 10 items or less. (laughs) And he knows it. just barely glazing the surface here, but what I'm getting at is it doesn't take much for us to get pretty fired up. It doesn't take much for us to demand someone's head. It doesn't take much for us to vent our frustration, sometimes in a physical way. It doesn't take much for us, if we're really honest, to even fantasize about a person's destruction. We make that comment out loud, or we just in our heads. You know the one. It'd be one less person not messing up this planet right now if we took him out. <laughs> All laughing aside, beneath the humor, all of us still struggle, as they did back then, with a craving for violence. Each of us can get bloodthirsty. And if we go back to the Lord's reasons for staying away from this practice, that's the broader principle here. That's the ethic that's being taught to the people and to us. It's this. Don't feed that Craving. Don't satisfy that thirst. Life belongs to God. God gives life, he says here in Leviticus. God gives life. All life is received from God, so don't take life arbitrarily. You see, what Leviticus is drawing out, what this is all about, is our default apart from our Father is to be takers. Our default, apart from our Father, is to be takers rather than givers. More often than not, we are taking what we ourselves can't give, what doesn't belong to us. Life is worship, life in relationship, life out of relationship with our Father in heaven is about giving, Leviticus wants to say, rather than taking. It's about giving to others. It's about giving back to God. And this is huge for us. This is, as much as we may think this is archaic, this is extremely relevant to us because we live more and more in a world where we are told that our primary identity is we are consumers. That's what we exist for. The world throws at us. Feed, feed it, man. You consume. Buy it, baby. Get it. That's what we're about. We're consumers. That's how we sell. That's how we live. That's how we evaluate ourselves. What are we consuming? And God says here in Leviticus, you are not consumers. That is not your identity. Don't drink the blood. Your primary identity, Leviticus doesn't use this word, but other scriptures will. You're not consumers. Biblically, our primary identity is we're stewards. You're not consumers, you're not takers, you're stewards, you're givers, you're conduits of blessing. Why was Israel set apart in the first place? Not so they could consume, 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 take, take, take. They were set apart to be a blessing unto the nations. To be the means of God's giving of himself to the nations. Don't drink the blood. God is saying if you're in worship of me, if you're in relationship with me, your default is to preserve what you have received to respect the life that you've been given. Not just your life, all life. All life that's around us. So my brothers and sisters in Christ, simple question this morning. As you sit here in the presence of your God, as we sit here and worship together, as we wrestle with and practice this life of worship, ask yourself, are you a giver or are you a taker? Are you a giver or are you a taker? Are you a consumer or are you a steward? Because God says life belongs to him, and God says life is sacred, too. Life is sacred, and God goes out of his way to accentuate life is sacred, especially a life that's been saved, and that's the kind of life we're living. Atonement, the last couple of weeks, atonement has shown us the price that must be paid. Atonement has shown us the sacrifice that has to be made to save life. And one of the things that we have to take away from looking at that Leviticus and then Hebrews looking at Leviticus is that the price that must be paid, the sacrifice that must be made, we can't handle it. We can't handle it. What we learn from the cross is that the redemption of life involves a level of suffering, a degree of violence that kills an ordinary person. For us, on our own, we live, in the world, we live in a world where it's the kind of struggle where death always wins. And that's why on our own, apart from God, by ourselves, the best strategy we can come up with is dying in order to live. We call it survival of the fittest. The philosophy that we operate apart from God is, hey, you know what? The weakest die so that others can live. The way the world works apart from God is only the strong survive. And for many of us, that's functionally how we live and how we process. But what we deny, what we fail to see, the flaw in that philosophy is that strength is relative. At some point, you're the weakest. We got a good mix of people in here this morning. Some of you, sorry, are past your prime. But there was a time. There was a time when you were feeling it. When, you know, you were in the zone, the moment you could take on and conquer anything. You felt strong. But you're in a place in life where you're not feeling strong anymore. You're feeling weak. And that's part of why you get very, very afraid in that weakness. And you lash out because you have to find some way to be strong, some way to have power. Because you can't be weak. Because you know what happens in this world apart from God. The weak die so that the strong survive. And then there are people like my son, who is not here. Good who is coming into his own on a regular basis, letting me know he's coming into his own. He's gone through two months of football camp, and his latest thing is to come up and say, hit me. (laughs) That didn't hurt. The man thinks he's bulletproof. And as he sits there, and he's strong, and his strength comes at the expense of my weakness, I keep looking at him, and I go, dude, look up here and look right here. It's in the genes, man. And he just looks at me, and he goes, oh, (laughs) No, no, I'm going to break the trend. That's not going to be me. And I never thought I'd be my father. I never thought I was going to be my dad. But I just look at him and I go, well, I look forward to seeing how that turns out for you. (laughs) Strength is relative. Strength is relative. At some point, you are the weak one. And that means death always wins. Contrast our philosophy, survival of the fittest. That's our gospel apart from God. Survival of the fittest. Contrast that with the gospel of God in Jesus Christ. Survival of the fittest versus God's gospel in Jesus Christ. The salvation of all the world. Beloved, And for God, redeemed life is precious. That's what he's trying to get us to see. Redeemed life is precious. There is suffering in a broken world. Life isn't cheap when death is on the line. Grace is costly. Life is sacred. So God says, don't take life for granted. Don't take your life for granted or anyone else's. Anyone else's. Life belongs to me and life is sacred because I have paid the ultimate price for life. Don't take the spilling of blood lightly. Beloved, if worship shapes our ethic, how we live together, then it's out of worship that we start need to have conversations that have to do with this. It's out of worship that we need to have our conversations about capital punishment, abortion, euthanasia, war, etc. Oh, now I've done it. Now I've put out on the, 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 the topics that will divide the room. We will get fired up about this. But very rarely do these topics, do we engage in these conversations out of our worship of our relationship to God and to each other. What we do is we end up engaging these topics out of our philosophy, our life apart from God, which is the survival of the fittest. Who yells the loudest? Who's the majority opinion? Beloved, the conversation that we need to have about these very, very sensitive and important topics needs to be shaped in the tension of our worship. What God is saying to the people, on one hand, is that as a people, we don't encourage or condone violence. We don't encourage or condone violence. We don't celebrate bloodshed. We need to hear that, church. We don't celebrate bloodshed. And, you know, this is important for us because in the church, even, nonviolence is often perceived as a wimpy or defeatist position. In the church, nonviolence is often perceived as a wimpy or defeatist position. But I'm here to tell you, and I'll debate with you after service, I'd love to talk about it with you. And I mean that. I would really love if if this is getting you going. Because here's the thing. We can split hairs all we want about the different hot-button issues I just mentioned. We can make all the exceptions we want in our minds or in our communities that we want. But here's the thing, and there's no way getting around it. It is biblical truth. Nonviolence ought to be the aspiration, the hope, and the aim of every Christian. If you are in Christ, nonviolence should be your aspiration, your hope, and your aim. And I'm here to tell you that that's not more the, 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 the trend in our churches. We need to get it that the cross is not about violence begetting violence. Sometimes I get a little nervous with some of the songs we sing about the cross. We almost in the, in the cross are celebrating the violence of the cross. We're kind of missing it. The cross isn't about violence begetting violence. And you look at our history. Think about the Crusades where the cross was lifted up as a means for overthrowing the Muslims. Violence begetting violence. But if you truly understand the message of the cross, the cross isn't about violence begetting violence. The cross is about violence being silenced by peace. Violence being silenced by peace, not peace that we hear in beauty pageants. (laughs) Violence being silenced by the peace that only God can give. Beloved, as Christians, as followers of Christ, our worship is about celebrating and promoting and endorsing that kind of peace, the peace that only God can give. That's on the one hand. On the one hand, the tension is we don't condone or encourage violence, but there's another tension that we have to live in, that God is getting at here in Leviticus, is that we don't minimize or trivialize violence either. We don't sanitize in the church, we don't sanitize in Christian community how bloody and broken the world around us is. How tattered and torn our lives are. That we look around and there's war. We look around and we need police. We look around and conflict is rampant. But in the midst of that reality, we can't let our hearts get hard. In the midst of that reality, they need to remain soft. You know, as I was talking uh, with John Alexanian about this sermon, and and he had an experience similar to mine, which draws out, again, when God is kind of saying, life is precious, life belongs to me, it's John checking the headlines on the internet, just checking the news, and just scrolling by with just a click, the the, the report of numbers of, of Christians being slaughtered in Egypt right now. And sharing with John, and I've had this experience myself, of just how quickly it was easy to just go on to the next piece of news. To not stop and realize, this isn't some story, this is news, this is happening right now. Hundreds upon thousands of Christians are being slaughtered in Egypt. Does that give me pause? Is there something wrong that I can just click back, pass to the entertainment news? to what the sports score is, that that doesn't stop me. And then for me, the deeper reality, as John and I talked, is that that's just one place. For how many months have we been hearing the violence that's taking place in Syria? How many lives have been lost? How many people are being, again, slaughtered? What God is saying is, as we scan the headlines, as we listen on the radio, As our hearts get harder, as our eyes turn away, that we have to keep our eyes, our ears, and our hearts open. We can't look away from all the blood that's being spilled around us. We can't look away from all the blood that's being spilled around us because it's when we see the blood, it's when we acknowledge the violence, it brings us right back here, right back to Him to Jesus, right back to not our ways, not survival of the fittest. We see it for what it is, but for the salvation of all the world. You know, maybe a good way to think about worship in this context is that worship is about developing the right kind of appetite. Worship is about learning to hunger for what God hungers for. So let me ask you this morning, the question that this provokes, Leviticus 17, is, what are we hungry for? What kind of appetite are we cultivating? Beloved, as we sit here today, for each one of us, are we still thirsting for blood? Or are we hungering for peace? Because when you get right down to it, here's the thing. Consuming blood and appetite for violence doesn't lead us towards Jesus. That's the point that God's making. Consuming blood and an appetite towards violence doesn't lead us towards Jesus. It takes us away from him. Because here's, here's when you look to Jesus, when you truly engage the person of Jesus, when Jesus is before you in your life, when you engage the living Christ, I'm going to tell you, you don't take life for granted. When you encounter the living Christ, you understand that life belongs to God. You understand that life is precious. It's sacred. Wow. And then there's chapter 18. <laughs> and chapter 18, which, I don't know if you noticed, is when Tony read, I didn't even have him read what you could, have, could really not even know what that chapter's about because he never really read anything because the stuff afterwards would just shock, we would have be, we would just be, oh my gosh. If you have it open, you can look at it now and you'll look back up and go, you'll blush. <laughs> because the second guideline, God gets right into blood and violence. The second guideline is sex. I kid you not. Heart's up. Got a text. Somebody texted me. I I, I wish I could have made this up. Someone texted me and said, Pastor Chris just wants you to know love you very much, supportive, but I'm not going to be at church this Sunday because I just don't think it's appropriate that we talk about sex in church. Think about that for a second. I don't think it's appropriate that we talk about sex in church. Well, like blood, in the Bible, sex is associated with life. And therefore, just like life, Sex is sacred. Stop right here. Sacred. Sex is sacred. Sacred doesn't mean that sex is bad. Many of us have grown up in contexts where uh, explicitly or unconsciously that's what we've been told. Sex is bad. That's why we don't talk about it in church. Or sex is shameful. That's why some people weren't, aren't going to come because we shouldn't talk about sex in church. No, no. The Bible says sex is sacred. And sacred means sex is good. It's good. Can we talk about this this morning? I gotta tell you, I was sweating writing the sermon. Because can we talk about this without being embarrassed? Can I look at you without you being like, oh my gosh, when is he gonna finish? <laughs> can we talk about this without being ashamed, in all seriousness, with some of you having a, a, just a pained look on your face? And for those of you who are young people, can we talk about this without you giggling the whole service? <laughs> which you're not old enough to realize this, but your giggles are just your way of not dealing with how scary this really is. And it doesn't have to be scary, but what God is saying here in Leviticus 18 and in chapter 20 is sex is sacred. It's good. It's good because it's a gift from God. Sex is good, but what Leviticus draws out for us is sex is good, but it's powerful. Sex is powerful because in the physical intimacy, the coming together of a man and a woman is a tangible reflection of the image of God. From the moment that God saw that it wasn't good for a man to be alone and brought Eve onto the scene, sex has been a part of what it means to reflect the image of God. You want to see what the image of God is? You can't just look at a man. You look at a man and a woman together, side by side. Sex is powerful as a reflection of the fullness of the image of God. Sex is powerful because sex unites a man and a woman together as one flesh. That's the term the Bible uses. One flesh mirroring, and I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, sex mirrors the interrelatedness of the Trinity. That sex mirrors not only the intimacy of God, but the creativity of God. The physical is the gateway for our deeper understanding of the emotional and spiritual union of marriage. Sex is powerful. Sex is powerful because it invokes and it enables the promises of marriage that a man and a woman stand up here and say to each other, it allows for those promises to begin to be fulfilled. Love, loyalty, fidelity, joy, children. These are the things that marital sex was made for. Sex is so powerful, in fact, that biblically... Here in Leviticus and elsewhere, sex is so powerful that marriage is given as the only possible expression for it. And that's where I'm going to lose 75% of you. Sex is so powerful that marriage is the only possible expression for it. What our Father spells out here, if you look at it, and in chapter 20, are all of the possible expressions of sex outside of marriage. And what God is basically saying in the midst of all the rules that we just see is how harmful sex with the wrong person is. In a way, to see just how powerful sex is, it's expressed in Leviticus by way of the negative, by outlining how hurtful and destructive sex is outside of marriage. What we see in all of these things in 18 and 20 is that sex is so powerful, it has the ability to dominate another person. Sex is so powerful, it can objectify another person. Sex is so powerful, it can actually dehumanize another person. And I want to say something right from the outside. I want to acknowledge this. That while marriage itself is no guarantee that abuse of sex will not happen. There's no guarantee in that. What I will say, what Leviticus is drawing out is that the likelihood of such abuse is greatly increased outside of the confines of the complete commitment and total union that marriage insists upon. If if I'm losing you, Again, the overriding point is that sex is sacred. Sex is a gift from God. And therefore, as God says, and as Tony read, not just for, this is true for everything, but it's true in terms of sex here, the pattern for sex is not what other cultures around us tell us. The pattern for sex is not what we ourselves decide. And that's probably the hardest thing for us to swallow. The pattern for sex, Leviticus declares, is what God designs, and that's marriage. The unity between a man and a woman. And if you doubt this, consider this. Marriage and sex together are so sacred, they're held together as being the the, it, that it's employed as the metaphor to describe the relationship between God and his people, between Christ and his church. Now, I also have to tell you that when I was preparing to preach this sermon and I shared what it was about, I literally had someone, it was actually two people, but only one person actually came and rubbed their hands together and said, good, finally, you're going to preach a sermon, we need to hear it, Pastor, where you're going to preach about a defensive marriage, you're going to preach against homosexuality, man, we've been waiting for you to do that. And I said, please don't come on Sunday because you're going to be really disappointed. And some of you, maybe in what I've shared so far, that's exactly where you went because it's very much out there. But let me tell you this morning, it me be really clear, this message this morning is not a referendum on homosexuality. My interpretation of the biblical stance of, on homosexuality has been implied in what I've just said. End of story. This is not a referendum on homosexuality because here's what I'd like to say, and I've never said it before because I shy away from saying these kind of things unless it, the text suggests it. But the text gives me the ability to say this. This is what I want to say as your pastor. Again, remember what I just said. I've given you my understanding of the biblical interpretation of this. But this is what I also want to say. This is not a referendum today on homosexuality because, frankly, my brothers and sisters in Christ, my brothers and sisters, our witness to and our treatment of the gay and lesbian community has not been Christ-like. Has not been Christ-like at all. And if anything, the burden is more on that end than it is on pounding what the Bible has to say about homosexuality. And I know that this could spark a lot of debate and I'm available and I mean that. I'm more than willing to have this conversation. But let me again, without going on a tangent, Hopefully we'll share with you why I think our our behavior towards the gay and lesbian community, one of the reasons has not been Christ-like. Because what we're doing right now, if that's where you go, what we're doing with Leviticus 18 and 20, not to mention the rest of the Bible, is we are missing, or maybe we're ignoring, that Leviticus is in fact this morning giving us a wake-up call to a broader, more honest ethic in terms of sex. We need to acknowledge our hypocrisy as the church because to people outside the church, you would think that the only thing that the Bible has to say about sex has to do with homosexuality. You would think that the only thing that God cares about is homosexuality. That's what we represent. That's what we give a lot of energy and a lot of promotion to. And I'm here this morning to say to you that Leviticus is blowing the conversation way more open than what we talk about. I'm here to say to you that we need to acknowledge for decades now in the church our blind eye and our silence because while we can get fired up about talking about marriage and about homosexuality, I am looking, I am waiting, who in the church, and I'm not just talking pastors or elders, I'm talking Christians, who in the church is having any kind of conversation about the rampant use and preponderance of pornography in our society? Who in our, in our church is talking about the fact that extramarital affairs are running wild, not just outside the church, but inside the church? That we have movies, we have books, we have blogs that ultimately have come to a place where they actually encourage an affair to benefit your marriage. Where in the Christian community are we having any conversation? When is someone going to ask me to preach a sermon about living together? When many of us are raising kids who are living together and we kind of just shrug our shoulders and go, well, that's how they do it these days. Where is the conversation? I've never had anybody ask me to preach a sermon about prostitution. And prostitution is rampant. How about sexual slavery? How about the mind-boggling fact that there are more people enslaved today than what we learned about in the history books, and the majority of those people are sexual slaves? Yet I have no one writing me emails, texting me, banging down, saying, let's have a defense of, against slavery Sunday. Beloved. love it. There is something seriously wrong if we take the fullness of what God wants to say to us about sex and isolate it just to something that ticks us off or that we're not comfortable with. Sex is powerful. And yet, other than high sexuality, we're silent about it at the church. The conversation needs to change. The conversation needs to change in terms of how we have it, and the conversation needs to change in terms of what we're talking about. You may not like what I'm about to say, but we have no credibility whatsoever. We have no leg to stand on. No grace, no love to even engage in a conversation about sex if all we have to talk about is homosexuality. We have nothing to contribute. We're not playing, we're not being a full revelation of God's word, we're not engaging it. What we're doing is we're closing ourselves off and just pointing to other people conversation needs to change, how we have it and what we're talking about. Beloved in Christ, we can't trivialize sex anymore. We can't stop saying to each other, it's no big deal. It's a big deal. We can't stop condoning anything goes. We have to stop saying in the church, well, if it feels good, do it. We have to stop privatizing sex. That's creeping into the church, that sex is private. It's my business, so no one else's gets involved. That's not true. Biblically, it's not. We have to talk about sex in the church openly, honestly, and fully, and we need to do it, please, in the context of worship. I'm going to say something that I think is going to throw you because we don't think like this, let alone say this out loud, but this is the gist of it. All sex, in other words, must be Christ-centered. All sex must be Christ-centered. But you know why that's so hard for us to hear? The idea that all sex must be Christ-centered, just, what? (laughs) is because for many of us, the only pleasure that drives us in sex is our own. The only, thing that, the only pleasure that drives most of us in sex is our own, and yet sex is no different than anything else that God gives us that's a gift that's sacred. What should primarily drive us is how does it give glory to God? The question, if sex is an expression of our worship, is how am I glorifying God? How am I pursuing God's pleasure in sexuality? That's a hard question. I don't even think we know how to approach that because we don't talk. I want to commend you a phenomenal book. It's called Sex and Money, Pleasures That Leave You Empty and Grace That Satisfies. It's by a man named Paul David Tripp. It's Paul David Tripp. If you don't get that while I'm preaching, I can email it to you. I want to read you a quote from his, his book, Sex and Money, Pleasures That Leave You Empty and Grace That Satisfies. He writes, You need to admit that this side of eternity, your heart is fickle. I get uncomfortable in all those worship service moments when we're singing, You're my all in all, you're my priceless treasure, with all my heart I love you or I adore you. I often stop singing and think, Really? Do I? Does love of God rule my heart unchallenged? Does it? Is God at the center of my affections, the focus of my greatest joys? Really? Is He? I think we seriously underestimate the fickle nature of our sinful hearts. We quickly switch loyalties. We rapidly trade affection for one thing for another. We all too easily give away our love. We willingly abandon commitments we forcefully made. We fail to do what we promised. We abandon our dreams for what we think would be a better dream. Our hearts will only ever be truly loyal and stable when our hearts are sin free. As long as sin lives inside of us in some way, we're all sadly shopping for a better, more satisfying master, denying the glory of the master that by grace we've been given. Where do we go from here? gosh, this would be a perfect sermon to tell you violence, stay away from those violent movies and violent video games. Sex, same thing. That would be too easy. Too simplistic. Where we go from here is we have to look inside. Each one of us. Individually and collectively. Where we don't go from here, and it's important I say this, where we don't go from here is a witch hunt. Please don't leave this morning with everything that I've said fired for barrel now, because you've got ammo to where you find the person that you're thinking of and you go, you know what Pastor Chris said? I was right all along. You ought to listen to this sermon. This sermon was for you. <laughs> Instead, what we need to do, and it's the most basic application of all, is we need to hold up our Bible and allow the Bible, as it often does, to become a mirror. A mirror to our own lives. And if you're still, you're, you're not with me, you're still looking for firewood, you want to start a fire? Be sure to grab the log in your own eye to start that fire first. Beloved, what we have to do is we have to take stock of the worship of our own life. We have to honestly ask ourselves, where are we thirsty for blood? Where in our lives are we prone to violence? Where in your life are you prone to taking or cheapening life and remember what jesus says it's not just what actually happens in terms of your hands it begins up here it starts in here where are you prone to bloodthirst to cheapening and devaluing life where are how are our sexual appetites are you respecting and honoring the power of sex are we respecting and honoring the power of sex Remember, the context in asking these questions is worship. It's worship. If, As I'm asking these things, you're this morning, and I do it too, are hiding. If you're compartmentalizing, creating all the reasons why this doesn't matter, it's no big deal, this, violence, this, this propensity towards violence in my life is no big deal, you, you're marginalizing it. Or this sex stuff, oh, I've got it under control, you're compartmentalizing it. In the context of worship, understand what you're doing. When you do that, when I do that, we are worshiping ourselves. We are worshiping ourselves. If you want to have the most, and it's not always, it can be hard, the most honest answer to those questions, where are you condoning violence, where are you thirsty for blood, what are your sexual appetites like, have that conversation. Not just with the scripture as a mirror, but realizing Christ is present in the midst of you asking that question. Picture Jesus on the other side of that question. Having that conversation with Jesus as He's present. And all of a sudden it's amazing how how we see things changes. You know, that's what worship is. It's it's realizing Jesus occupies the whole space of our lives, and therefore we bring the whole space of our lives to Jesus and allowing Jesus to, to again teach us and grow us in all aspects of our lives. That's worship. You know, a way to think about worship that helps me is worship is like marinating. If you ever marinate something? You know, you marinate something so it takes on the flavor of something else, right? What are you marinating in? If you're coming here and for an hour and 15 minutes or a little bit longer on a Sunday, that's what, well, your time for marinating in relationship with Christ. Just from practical life experience, you know you're not going to take on the flavor. The longer you marinate, the more you take on the flavor. What are you marinating in? What's the flavor of your life, of your worship? And I want you to hear this finally. What I'm calling you to do, these questions I'm giving to you, please, 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 I am not having you leave, one, on a witch hunt, but I'm also not having you leave beating yourself up. Please don't leave this morning and say, man, Pastor Chris sure kicked my butt this morning. Man, I got totally pounded today. Because worship, if you truly understand worship, what we do here, what our lives are about, what our life in Christ is about, worship is not about guilt and shame. Worship is about submitting our practices and our habits to God, not so that we can wallow in guilt and shame, not so that we can basically get beat up. It's about submitting our habits and our practices to God so that we can be set free. Some of what I've said this morning is speaking right between the eyes to where some of you live. What I'm saying about violence and what I'm saying about sex, you are in the thick of right now. But there's another aspect of what God has said this morning that is striking at some of you in a place that you buried a long, long time ago. That you stuffed in a closet, that you swept under a rug, that you stuffed down, and right now you are going like trying to push it back down. And I am here to tell you, That is not what worship is about. Worship is about being set free. Set free from guilt and shame. Worship is not about me beating you up or the word of God beating you up or you leaving feeling defeated. Worship is about confessing, having the conversation, putting it out there, putting it on the table, confessing and it's in confessing and letting go of it that we can receive because there's nothing holding us back. The forgiveness that God continues always offers to us. The grace that he has for us Worship is about empowerment. It's about transformation. So I want you today to wrestle with these questions and wrestle beyond the time we spend together, not so you can beat yourself up, not so you can beat someone else up, but so that you can be set free in Christ, so that you can be empowered, so that you can discover who you are, so that you can once again be reminded and be free in knowing who's in control and to once again embrace that our Father does know best. Because worship is about resisting being ruled by what you've been welcome to enjoy. That's what's so twisted about our broken world. That's how the enemy works. The world is broken. The best way you know the world is broken is the very things that God gives us to enjoy become the very things that oppress us. The enemy takes the very things that God gives us to bless us, and they become curses. And worship, another way to think about it, is about coming to allow God to break those chains and to not let the things that we were welcome to enjoy rule over us. Beloved, few things argue more strongly for our need to worship or our need for grace than our struggle, constant struggle, to keep God-given pleasures in their proper place. Because the truth is, our appetites can consume us. The truth is, we are what we eat. Worship is about realizing that you have been given, you are continuously supplied forgiveness, empowerment, transformation, and grace in the midst of the struggle. Apart from God, it's all just blood, sweat, and tears. Trust me, I know. I know personally, and I know pastorally. Apart from God, it's all just blood, sweat, and tears. But in Christ, in worship, in relationship to God and out of that relationship to God, in relationship with each other, it can be about peace. It can be about unity. It can be about joy. Beloved, let us worship together in peace, unity, and joy. Will you pray with me? Oh. <clears throat> Father, through Jesus, we, we've tasted your goodness. It's satisfied us, and, and it's made us hungry for more. We're painfully conscious of our need for further grace. And it's so easy for us to come in and to just become ashamed, to just wallow in the guilt and in the shame of how easily and how quickly we can seek to satisfy that desire through nothing more than blood, sweat, and tears. Father, God, break through our deafness when it comes to sex. Father, dispel our blindness when it comes to violence. Father, give us a thirst for peace, the peace that only you can give. Father, teach us to find our intimacy in you, to not give away our love so easily and so cheaply. Show us your glory, Father, so that we may know you indeed. Begin a new mercy, a new work of love within us. Say to our souls, say to our souls, rise up. Rise up, my love my fair one, and come away. And Lord, give us grace to rise up, to follow you from this valley where we've wandered for so long. Give us your grace to come into your peace, to come into your unity, to come into your joy. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, amen.